If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. People, mainly nuns apparently, took fleas, dead fleas, and then made little costumes for them and put them in the costumes and created little tiny tableau. That was Stephen Moss on some remarkable animals from history. I would love to have a word with Elizabeth I and work out how she sorted on the colours in her wardrobe because really, even today, any redhead wanting to know what colours are going to work for them need look no further than a portrait of Elizabeth I. And that was Jackie Collis-Harvey talking to us about red hair through the ages. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of December 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Stephen Moss, a writer and producer. Stephen is a co-author of Natural Histories, a book that explains how 25 extraordinary species have changed our world. The book accompanies a BBC Radio 4 series of the same name, presented by Stephen's co-author, Brett Westwood. Our deputy editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Stephen recently to find out more. 
Stephen, just firstly, perhaps tell us, tell us a little bit about um, the book and you know what what inspired you um, and you and Brett to, to to write the book. Well, I think Brett and I have always been very very interested in the cultural history of nature. It's something we wrote about, touched on in Tweet of the Day, and I've written about it in the past. And when the radio series Natural Histories came up, which Brett presents. I think we both thought, what a lovely opportunity for a book. Um, and luckily, the publisher of Tweet of the Day agreed. <laughs> um, and so the, the stories themselves, um, you know, where, where, have you just been doing, doing lots of research and you've picked the best? Or, you know, are these things that you knew about before you started writing? In some cases, yes, I did know about them. I mean, what happened was that we had 25 groups or species picked by the radio team. So I didn't have any say in that at all. I, I, I was actually quite intrigued when they gave me the list because it had very obvious things on like lion and shark and whale. Uh, and then it had groups like monkeys and apes and parrots. And then it had really obscure things, sea anemones, um, meteorites, which obviously aren't obscure in themselves, but aren't particularly natural, but have an interesting story to tell. And my favourite, the burbot, which we thought was a misprint for turbot isn't um uh, yes i mean i was, was going to say there's a, a very wide range um of topics covered you know from fleas to to corals to you know to nightshades to eggs you know you name it it's in there um so perhaps you know perhaps we can sort of just touch on some of the some of the stories that you cover um one one that um kind of caught my eye um was were the dressed up fleas um, yes. which I think is definitely something that should be brought back. Tell me a little bit about that. What, you know, what, what, what is this? Well, it's a very bizarre story. I mean, fleas have quite a strong cultural history because, of course, they, they don't just live alongside us like the other animals in the book. They live on us. And so they really have, they probably go back to right the very beginning of, of, of our history as, as the human race. We had fleas with us. Um, the, the, Dressed fleas are a very strange phenomenon from, I think, the late 19th, early 20th century in Mexico, where people, mainly nuns, apparently, took fleas, dead fleas, and then made little costumes for them and put them in the costumes and created little tiny tableau. You can imagine about two or three millimetres high of things like a wedding party. So it's utterly bizarre because you can imagine doing that with, say, beetles, because beetles come in lots of different shapes and sizes and some of them you could imagine you know, have the sort of head and body. But a flea is so tiny that it just seems completely bizarre. It did die out, um, not not entirely unexpectedly. Um, but someone, I think, might be even trying to resurrect it. I think we mentioned someone in the book who's, who's trying to do that. Oh, I mean, do we know why? You know, what what's you know how how is the flea seen? Why was it sort of celebrated like this? Well, I looked quite heavily into this, and I couldn't find an answer. There wasn't an obvious reason why. I think it was just something that started and became a bit of a cult. Um, with other creatures, you know, you understand why. So the, the hornbill is a wonderful story, this fantastic bird that lives in tropical Asia and Africa. And one particular hornbill, the helmeted hornbill, has a very hard, they all have this strange, what they call a cask above their bill, which is a piece of, well, they actually call it hornbill ivory. Um, and it's rather like that. It's keratin. So it's like what we our hair and, and, uh, is made out of. And what they do with the helmeted hornbill, because its cask is the front of it is solid, they would carve them, the Chinese and the Malays, into immensely ornate shapes and, and beautiful carvings known as netsuki um, 
in, in I suppose about five six hundred years ago this was the, the height of this which are now very valuable so that was a wonderful story because of course all these stories including the dressed fleas are based on an object in the natural history museum and that, that that's something that was really the starting point for each story so going back to the fleas have fleas always been seen as the sort of pests that they are today or have they sort of represented um something else through history no, I think they've always been seen as pests. Oh. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think people like fleas at all. Uh, I mean, the exception, of course, was the great Charles Rothschild, um, who founded the museum, uh, basically founded the Wildlife Trust's movement, but also founded the big museum in Tring that was a private museum and then was transferred to the British Museum after his death. And his daughter, Miriam Rothschild, who was a wonderful character, only died a few years ago in her 90s. And Dame Miriam Rothschild was obsessed with fleas and wrote wonderful books about them and, and made them as exciting as any animal you can imagine. So she features in the book, of course. We've got some great people in the book as well. Okay, and then... Another another one that caught my eye was um, it was uh, crocodiles um, and how they've sort of been revered, particularly by the ancient Egyptians. Why the crocodile? I think it's more, you know, in a way it's more understandable why the crocodile should be revered because it's an extraordinarily fierce, well-adapted animal that's very good at what it it does and it's very obvious if you go into Africa or Australia you see them and you know and, and they are extraordinarily charismatic animals um, so yes the Egyptians actually had a city named after them it's nicknamed after them actually it's called Crocodilopolis yeah I was trying to say that earlier easy for me to say <laughs> I, I had to practice that one um, but they're not the only people the people of East Timor um in in I think the Western Pacific, forgive my geography here, um, their island, the island of Timor itself, is shaped a little bit like a crocodile. And so they worship crocodiles, but that had a rather downside that they, because they worshipped them, they thought they were harmless and apparently used to get killed quite frequently by them. Um, as do people even today in Australia and Africa, you know, crocodiles are pretty lethal. And, and do we know what crocodilopolis, do we know what, you know, what, what that place was like? You know, do well, people they, go and visit it? It, yeah, it, it was a, a, a city where they had mummified crocodiles and worshipped them and would bury sorry, mummified crocodiles and their eggs in the tombs of important people. You know, so you would find a wrapped crocodile. And I think there was actually a mummified crocodile may be still there in the Natural History Museum. Um, so these, these you mentioned about the museum. So um, if people visit the museum, are these are these objects going to be labelled? Um, will people be able to see them as they walk around? Yeah, they do an exhibition. They've got a new gallery there where they've put some of their most special exhibits, um, including, uh, for me, I think my favourite exhibits of this. One is the Barbary Lion Skull, which was dug up in the Tower of London, which dates right the way back to the 13th century. Uh, and is the skull of a now extinct race, North African race of the lion. Um, so that's a wonderful story. And then the other incredible object is what I, one of the few I actually knew about before, which was that um, it's an emperor penguin's egg, which was brought back by the polar explorer Apsley Cherry Garrard, who was with Scott in the Antarctic, went out on this extraordinary expedition to try to collect emperor penguins' eggs to prove a now sadly discredited theory about evolution, brought them back, and they now rest in the museum. But the, the story has two follow-ups. One, that Cherry Garrard then wrote one of the great classics of travel writing called The Worst Journey in the World, which is an extraordinary tale of hardship and horror 
undertaken by these men. And then he was also the man who found um, Robert Falcon Scott, Captain Scott's body, um, the bodies of the others in the tent where they had failed to reach safety. So it's a very moving story. And the egg is a wonderful starting point for these stories, as all these objects are in the book. You know, the Natural History Museum is a place I, I visited when I was a child. It's my favourite place in the world, I think, if, if, in terms of places like that. And it's such an inspiring place. And these objects, many of them are now on display there. So you can see the actual things mentioned in the series and the book. Brilliant. I mean, I was going to ask you actually whether you had any favourites. It sounds like the Barbary Lion um, is is one of them. Did you want to maybe tell us a little bit about that? The Barbary Lion um, was dug up, as I say. It was found, uh, I think, in the 1930s when two workmen were working on the Tower of London and dug up some skulls. And it was, I think it was known then, but not really appreciated, that the Tower of London was home to an extraordinary menagerie of animals um, from roughly the reign of King John onwards, so the 12th century onwards. And this menagerie had lions in. There's a terrible story of a woman visiting, a young woman visiting, I think in the 18th century, many years later, where she puts her hand rather too near the cage and the lion pulls it in and bites her arm off and she dies of, of infection. You know, terrible story. But what these lions were, of course, it, it's what, what the book is mostly about if it you know and the series as well is what these animals mean to us so we talk about the biology of the lion and the biology of the shark and the crocodile and the, and the sea and enemy and all these things but what we are really interested in and the purpose of the series in the book is to talk about the the cultural history so why was this lion a symbol and what was it a symbol of and lions are inherently a symbol of power which sort of makes sense until you remember that male lions, which are the symbol, tend to basically lie around not doing very much while the, the women do all the work. Um, tigers, for example, would be a much more powerful sim symbol, if you like, of, of, of a, a lone hunter. Um, but lions, it might maybe that mane, it may be just because by a sort of historical accident that there were more lions in Britain in those days because Africa, North Africa had been explored by the Romans, so they had lions. So, you know, lions were part of our culture from a very long time ago, and maybe that's why they became a symbol. So when we started looking at what lions are a symbol of, I'm going to leaf through the book briefly because I need to remember this, um, but they are, you know, there's a lion bar, isn't there? A chocolate bar. Um, Sky TV lions. Um, you know, the Sikh surname Singh means lion. comes from an ancient word meaning lion. And that's one of the commonest surnames in the world. Richard the Lionheart, of course. You know, he wasn't stupid. He was a, uh, a king whose pretensions to kingship were rather tricky. So he said, right, I'm going to brand myself, if you like. It's one of the earliest examples of branding. Three lions on the England shirt famous song uh you get lions on school badges you get them uh, my old school actually had a lion on um i'd forgotten that um companies that use lions peugeot cars low and brow beer which means lions brew the football premier league chelsea aston villa england cunard cruises the rock band queen sky sports and metro goldwyn mayor now you know that shows the power of these symbols the fact that we say oh richard the lionheart yes it's a bit obvious isn't it using a lion as his symbol well we still do it we just don't even notice. 
So where's 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 the line then in history between you know these these animals that are seen as very powerful and and then you've got the kind of the the sort of more monstrous side of things, haven't you? Things like you mentioned the squid, the giant squid in your book. Yes. Um, so giant, you know, yeah, yeah. So why was that not seen in the same way? Well, they're seen. Uh, the giant squid is seen as a fearsome sea monster because it was so mysterious. No one knew what it really was. No one caught one till quite recently. You know, these are a truly mysterious animal. The other one that's interesting, though, is the shark, because the lion and the shark are both top predators. Um, they're both feared, but the lion is admired and the shark is hated. And uh, several people we interviewed, some excellent academics and, and, and social historians and other people in, in the series, uh, and they're represented in the book as well. And you know, some of them were saying, well, the thing about a shark is when it looks at you, it shows no emotion, no expression. Now, that's not the shark's fault. That's just the nature of sharks. But this has led, and that, and of course, I'm going to do something now, and you will know immediately what I'm doing, even with my terrible singing voice. You know what that is, he don't could, you? He could forget. <laughs> now, that's the theme music of Jaws. Wonderful story here. John Williams, young composer, Steven Spielberg, young newly established film director, but not as famous as, of course, they are now, these multi-Oscar winning men. John Williams goes round to see Spielberg, and Spielberg says, how are you getting on with the idea for the theme for the film Jaws? And Williams says, well, I've got it. And he plays two notes on the piano. And then he steps back, and Spielberg says, are you having a laugh? Or words to that effect. And he says, no, that's the theme. It's just two notes. And you know, that film in itself, and Peter Benchley, who wrote the book for Jaws, later came to regret this and ended up working to save sharks. It ended, you know, that film caused many, many millions of people around the world to have a, a, a entirely irrational, really, fear of sharks. Because, you, as we say, your chances, you're more likely to be struck by lightning on the way to the beach than you are to be killed by a shark. But nevertheless, people still fear it. But, um, yeah, thanks for those two notes, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the fact the shark, you know, it, there's something horrible about sharks that we can't get out of our head. And I think it's this merciless killer idea that we don't think of lions and tigers as merciless killers. No, they seem to be, it, sharks sort of come across as a bit being a bit cold, you know. Yeah. Cold fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yet, you know, of course, the shark is rarer than the, the great white shark is rarer than the tiger. You know, these are terribly endangered animals because we kill 70 million sharks a year, which is an awful lot more than sharks kill people mm, yeah um sort of going going back to the small again yes. um co cockroaches have always i've always found them quite intriguing and there's so many myths aren't there around the cockroaches can they survive a nuclear war can, you know all sorts of different things why do they generate so much sort of almost fascination well they're another one that generates loathing um recently a commentator who i won't deign to name um compared the people trying to cross the Mediterranean, the asylum seekers, to cockroaches. And of course, she knew exactly what she was doing because this is something that's been done twice before in history. Hitler compared the Jews to cockroaches and the um, Hutu people in Rwanda compared the Tutsis to cockroaches. And it dehumanises people when you call them cockroaches. It, it immediately, it's so repulsive. And the famous Franz Kafka um, novella, Metamorphosis, we we always think it's a cockroach. He never says. The, the man wakes up as an insect. It could be any insect, but for us, it's always a cockroach. And if you read, if you Google 
Kafka cockroach, you will get lots of references. Um, so that shows just the power of this animal, and partly because they are fairly indestructible, and again, rather like fleas, because they live alongside us, so we encounter them, and we don't like it when other animals invade our space. Um, I mean, are there, what other animals would you say st- stood out for you, you know, during your research for the book? I think my favourite was the burbot, actually. Oh, yes, yes. Tell us about the burbot. It's a fish. It's a, it's a cold water, freshwater member of the cod family, the only freshwater member of the cod family. It is almost certainly extinct in Britain, but there have been two intriguing recent sightings, which we mentioned, one of which was by a French angler who knows burbot very well, because they're quite common in France, and he's convinced one swam up and he looked at it and it swam away. It was only later he discovered that they're not found in Britain. They used to be. So that's an intriguing story. Uh, Chekhov wrote a short story about the burbot. Um, it was apparently very beautiful to eat. And the, my favourite thing is there is a Swedish death metal band. It's a genre of heavy metal with which I'm not overly familiar. Um, and they are they sing a song about the burbot, the burbot's revenge. So it has a strange cultural history. And that was an inspired choice by the producer, Mary Colwell, of the, of the radio series, who said, right, we've got to do this because it's such a great story. And why do you think meteors um, and, and, and coral and things like that, why, why do you think they've been picked out for the book? Well, coral, of course, is an animal, which many people don't appreciate. They either think it's a rock formation or a plant or, or, or some combination of the two and they are animals and they're intriguing animals um that was very much about the image of paradise the coral the coral island by rm ballantyne which was a, a, a novel that even by my childhood in the 60s we didn't really read anymore but it was immensely popular in the victorian era and it's about boys stranded on a coral island the um flip side of that was when William Golding wrote Lord of the Flies, which was effectively, he deliberately conceived it as an antidote to the sort of Victorian heroics of uh, of Coral Island. And Robinson Crusoe is a desert island, but I think we have this image of coral atolls of being, you know, paradise. Um, and of course, corals are being destroyed, coral atolls being destroyed all around the world. They have been for many years and they still are being by um, devastation, by um overfishing by things like climate change you know lots of lots of things are affecting them so it's a sort of trouble in paradise story every 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 program and every chapter in the book has an angle on the natural world they're not they just repeat each other they're very much looking at different aspects the meteorites is about life outside our knowledge um and i was reading even this morning in the paper there's a new theory that the reason the dinosaurs who were also in the book died out so quickly when the meteorite hit the earth um 66 million years ago is that it sparked off uh, the impact sparked off explosions from lots of volcanoes which then basically lowered you know filled the air with smoke lowered the temperature plants died animals died there was nothing for the dinosaurs to eat and they disappeared in an extraordinarily short time i mean perhaps perhaps we should finish up with the dinosaurs what do you say about those in the book well one of the most intriguing things about dinosaurs which is being discovered in the last few years is is that they had feathers they mostly had feathers they didn't all have feathers the large ones um had probably lost them but some of the smaller ones had feathers they were not cold-blooded as we think nor were they exactly warm-blooded they're sort of mesothermic it's a it's a concept funny enough sharks are the same where they could control their body temperature up to a point and so they were much more active than we 
used to think they weren't these great lumbering beasts. And the lovely thing about dinosaurs, of course, particularly for me as a as a obsessive ornithologist, is that they are still with us. Birds are dinosaurs. They descended from the same common ancestor. Birds are actually more closely related to dinosaurs than other reptiles are. So you can sort of see that, can't you? When they the way they move sometimes. I yeah, you can yeah. see it. And there's a wonderful scene at the, which I mentioned in the book at the end of Jurassic Park, the film, wonderful film, where Jeff Goldblum is flying away, having escaped the carnage, and they look down, and there are it's a flock of brown pelicans, which are probably the most dinosaur-like bird in the world, flying back towards the island. And he says something like, oh, they're still with us, you know, and it's a wonderful moment. And that's a relatively recent discovery. 30, 40 years ago, um, people had a very different image of dinosaurs from what we have now. Um, are there any animals that didn't make the book that you would love to have, have seen um, in print? Yeah, I think there were. I mean, obviously, I love birds. We have parrots, hornbills and birds eggs. I'd have loved to have cranes. Cranes are magnificent birds worship around the world i think they would have made a very good story but there may be a second series you never know if there's a second series of the radio series uh, you know they had a list as long as your arm of things they could have put in and as i say, i think mary and julian hector and the production team and brett of course who presents it did a fantastic job finding these stories really making sure that they had the right combination of stories and i think they are a truly wonderful combination of really stories that some of the readers will know quite well. Um, most people know quite a lot about Jaws, for example, but hopefully they won't know perhaps about other aspects of that chapter and other animals in the book. That was Stephen Moss. Natural Histories, 25 Extraordinary Species That Have Changed Our World is out now published by John Murray. And you can listen to 25 episodes of the BBC Radio 4 Natural Histories series on the BBC iPlayer Radio. Meanwhile, why not check out the Christmas edition of BBC History magazine, which is currently on sale. In this month's issue, we have articles on Victorian poverty, Elizabeth I's rivalry with Mary Queen of Scots, the medieval history behind Game of Thrones, and the Battle of the Atlantic, among other things. You can get hold of our Christmas edition in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Before our next interview, here's a reminder about our BBC History magazine events, which are taking place next February. On Saturday the 27th and Sunday the 28th of that month, at Bristol's M-Shed Museum, we're holding two-day events themed around Roman Britain and the First World War in 1916, respectively. Each day includes a star-studded lineup of speakers, plus a buffet lunch. To find out more or purchase tickets, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Our second interview this week is with Jackie Collis-Harvey. Jackie is the author of Red, which tells the story of red hair through the ages, from its prehistoric origins through the ancient world to Elizabeth I and beyond. She spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton, who began by asking Jackie where the inspiration for the book came from. I work in publishing and I was sitting in a sales conference watching another publisher present their series of history titles and I was amusing myself by coming up with potential new ideas for them and I had this real red light bulb overhead moment and I came back and I'd filled three notebooks in a month. When you have red hair, people share with you their theories, their thoughts, their feelings about red hair all your life. So I had quite a lot of material to work with. But I began to realize that there was a real historical detective story to uncover here. And the further I went into it, the more fascinating it became. Mm. I mean, heading back to the very earliest days that we possibly can, how far can we trace the genetic origins? A long, long way back. We can trace it back 50,000 years. That's when the gene first appeared on the planet. And um, so whereabouts did that happen? It was in the grasslands of Central Asia, astonishingly enough. Nothing to do with Scotland or Ireland at all. But uh, 50,000 years ago, the early modern humans who became all of us had got that far and no further. And since geneticists can be confident that's when the gene appeared, that's where we were at the time. Mm. Do we get a sense of how red hair was regarded in the ancient world? We do. We do. It crops up in the writings of a lot of classical authors. There's a very famous quote from Xenophanes on how men make gods in their own image. Therefore, the gods of the Thracians have blue eyes and red hair. And Herodotus, for whom the Thracians were near neighbours, also discusses the fact that red hair was very, very common amongst the Thracian tribes. And he also characterises them as being the epitome of everything that was barbaric at the time. So that's one big stereotype of um, red-headed men, certainly, comes into being thousands of years ago. Do we get an idea of why it was regarded in such extreme ways, even, even then, thousands of years ago? I think it's 
Because it has always been rare, so it has always been other. And for most of our time on this planet, it seems that anything that is other has been regarded with suspicion and with a measure of fear as well. But undoubtedly, the tribes who lived in Thrace, which is now pretty much modern Bulgaria and a little bit of Greece around the Black Sea, did have a very, very different lifestyle to the classical authors who were encountering them and commenting upon them. They lived in small tribal units, for example, which might account for the preponderance of red hair amongst them. And they refused to move into cities. They spurned every form of earning a living other than fighting, either between themselves or for other people. They provided did a lot of mercenaries for Alexander the Great, for example. And absolutely shockingly, as far as the classical authors were concerned, and Herodotus in particular, they were um, very free and easy in the way they regarded the women in their societies who were, who were, were, no watch was kept on them, is what Herodotus says. They were allowed to have relationships willy-nilly with who they pleased until they decided they were going to get married. So their red hair became a marker of their otherness, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Um, A period in which they did become, uh, people with red hair did become particularly discriminated against was the medieval period, wasn't it? Yes. But again, one of the things that makes red hair so fascinating is the fact that it is so gendered. And once again, it was bad for men and good for women. The medieval um, artists depict uh, red-haired Judas over and over again in their scenes of the agony in the garden or of the betrayal. Red hair is Well, it's not common, but it certainly crops up in the Jewish community because the Jewish community is endogamous and doesn't doesn't marry out as much as other communities do. And red hair being a recessive gene, those circumstances give it the greatest possible chance of expressing itself. And it seems that when the first Jewish communities moved into Europe, immediately red hair was picked up on as a signifier of their otherness. So you get this image of red haired Judas cropping up in medieval art. And obviously that did nothing at all for the image of red headed men. However, at the same time, you also get a red headed Mary Magdalene as well. And she was one of the most beloved and empowered figures in the whole of the Catholic pantheon. So there's a huge split between male and female representations of red hair from very early on. How do people square that difference? I, you know, seriously, I have absolutely no idea. I think it meant otherness and untrustworthiness for men, but for women, as it has seems to do for a very, very long time, it seems to have been connected with the fact that Mary Magdalene, as the Western Church constructed her, was regarded as a reformed prostitute and therefore had something to do with the idea that red hair in women is erotic and sexually interesting and carries with it this overtone of um, being a, um, a, a slight sexual outlaw in a way, something slightly bohemian. Hmm. Um, As we head into the Renaissance, um, the signifiers changed, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yes. Yes. So so what happened in in that period? Well, very interestingly, of course, Elizabeth I was a redhead. Uh, Henry VIII, her father, was certainly a redhead, and quite clearly Anne Boleyn must have been carrying the gene. And in Elizabethan England... 
red hair and a pale skin became extraordinarily fashionable, fashionable and also was a sign of your loyalty to the Queen. There are any number of redheads in Elizabethan portraiture. They can't all have been natural. And we do know that the Elizabethans used to use um, tints and dyes to change their hair colour so that they were able to copy this fashionable icon of white skin and red hair that began with Elizabeth I. And in that period, it seems to have become a sort of signifier of Englishness as well. Red and white were very much Elizabeth's brand colours, as it were, but they were also the colours of St. George, who was the only English saint to survive the Reformation. And there is a wonderful poem by Sir John Davis. It must be one of the most um, toadying pieces of verse ever created in the English language, I think, where he, he puts together an enormous series of verses, the first letters of the first line of which for each verse, each line in each verse, spell out the name Elizabeth. But the conceit in the entire poem is how the colours red and white are incomplete until they're given the queenly magnificence that Elizabeth could bring to them. Wow. <laughs> it's a really, I, it's a sustained piece of flattery that you have to take your hat off to. You really <laughs> do. And obviously, as an historian of red hair, hugely exciting for me Yes. Um, the book touches on a whole range of um, kind of portraits and other images. Are there any that particularly stand out for you? Well, I do love the portraits of Elizabeth I. I found the coronation portrait of her particularly interesting because I think it influenced the depiction of Boudicca, another warrior queen, in Hollinshead's Chronicles, which was published during Elizabeth's reign, where Boudicca appears before her troops with long flowing hair, just as in Elizabeth's coronation portrait, and with this little open-arched, notched crown on her head. And the troops she is addressing, of course, the artist makes no attempt at all to depict them in the costume that the Iceni warriors would have worn. Instead, they're armoured as Elizabethan men-at-arms. And you really can't look at that image without thinking also of Elizabeth addressing her troops when the Spanish Armada was threatening England. It's this idea of um, a warrior queen on an island with red hair, as so many warrior queens are depicted as having even today, and uh, bolstering her troops' courage against this foreign invader. It's very, very powerful, politically very interesting. Mm, and really striking too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we've touched there on, on Elizabeth, obviously. Are there any other characters that for you really stand out? I am very fond of my cover girl, Alexa Wilding. She was uh, pursued down the street by the pre-Raphaelite artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti when she was just 16 years old and had what must have been a very strange conversation with him. This man telling her that he was an artist and that he wanted her to sit for him. Unsurprisingly, she didn't keep their first appointment. She probably thought that she had had a narrow escape from God knows what as a, you know, a young woman in London in the 1860s. But he then spotted her again from his handsome cab, pulled his handsome cab or had his handsome cab pulled to a screeching halt at the curb, one imagines, charged down the street after again. And this time she did agree to sit for him and she became his um, most used model. In fact, he paid her not to sit for anybody else. Wow. Um, 
If you could somehow travel back in time and talk to somebody in this book, what would you ask them, do you think? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I would love to speak with members of the Jewish community in medieval Europe and see how they felt about this form of stigmatization. I'd love to know how they themselves felt about red hair, because, of course, in the Bible, King David has red hair. So it might have meant one thing to the community around them and something very, very different to them. Um, I would love to have a word with Elizabeth I and work out how she sorted on the colours in her wardrobe, because really, even today, any redhead wanting to know what colours are going to work for them need look no further than a portrait of Elizabeth I. She absolutely had it down. (laughs) Um, What was the thing that surprised you the most? I was astonished to discover that, first of all, red hair is It's extraordinarily difficult to perm, as I have had many, many disastrous perms in my time on my own hair, and suddenly I understood why. It has much more, much stronger chemical linkages than hair of other colours, which is why it is is particularly challenging if you're trying to perm it into curls. And I was one of the redheads who was born without the ringlets that so many redheads get. So hence the disastrous perms in my hair's history. But I was also very interested to discover all of the things that make redheads genetically unique. For example, the fact that we have a much more acid skin mantle than people with hair of other colours, which changes the way that scents and aftershaves work on our skin. I was, uh, when I was a bankrupt student, I bought a bottle of ESL opium perfume with a brunette girlfriend of mine. And on her, it smelt wonderful. And it made me smell exactly like a cat that had just come back from the vets. <laughs> and I suddenly understood why. <laughs> Do we get a sense of how redheads themselves felt about themselves through history? We... Due to, you have to sort of read between the lines here. There are moments when red hair was very fashionable. For example, in Elizabethan England, if you want, you would have gone so far as to apply oil or vitriol, which is sulfuric acid on your hair, to change its colour to red and to copy the Queen. There are times when you get these little sort of descriptions of redheads. There's a wonderful description of a redheaded villainess in one of Wilkie Collins' novels, Armadale, which is probably one of the most sensational novels he ever wrote. And although he is presenting this woman as being a shocking character, her fascination for him as her creator and her beauty comes across very, very strongly. So I think redheads have probably, particularly redheaded women, have always been aware that their hair colour sets them apart simultaneously in both a bad way and in a good way. It's a very intriguing dichotomy. Mm, Yeah. Heading into the 21st century, what kind of roots can we trace in the way that people are now treated because of their hair colour? I think you still see many, many... Times the connection between red hair in women and erotic interest. I think for men, very interestingly, it is now starting to change. Um, there is the possibility that the next James Bond will be Damien Lewis, so we will have a red-headed James Bond. Benedict Cumberbatch, of course, has you know sort of people queuing round the block to see him as Hamlet at the moment. Although his hair is darkened for that, he is naturally a redhead. 
And uh, we have redheads like Ed Sheeran, for example, who have said how the noticeability of red hair was one of the things that kick-started his career because it was so easy for people to find his videos on YouTube. They just put in redheaded guy with guitar. So it it's it's something where um as with many many minority groups what you're what we're what redheads are doing now as well as all of the festivals and conventions that we hold is to take what were the negative stereotypes and turn them into a positive simply by playing up the fact that they are so unusual which makes them something that people desire because you know we all want to stand out in some way hmm. do we have a figure for how many people in this country at least are redheaded well globally the the proportion is about 2% of the population of the planet. It goes up and down from one country to another. It's about 10% of the population of Ireland, and it's about 13% of the population of Scotland at the moment. So overall in the UK, it's certainly higher than 2%. I would say it was running at about 5 to 6 But that, you know, is still pretty unusual. So those links to the Celtic countries, as, as it were, are, are kind of valid in a, in a sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's because um, they are societies which are they're liminal, as I describe them in the book. They're a little bit separated geographically from the sort of the genetic ocean of the rest of Europe, as it were. And that's, again, has given this recessive genetic recessive gene for red hair a greater opportunity to express itself. Hmm. What was the biggest challenge for you in writing this book? getting my head around some of the genetic material. I was very, very pleased when an anthropologist friend of mine read through it and said, no, what you've said makes sense. And it's a, a, a valid um, uh, explanation for why red hair is so linked with Ireland and Scotland when it began somewhere else altogether. But really, one of the greatest challenges I faced was that there is so much, so many mythologies and uh, so much nonsense on the internet about red hair. And I wanted to make sure that all of the sources I used were authentic and if they were scientific, that they were peer reviewed or that they were printed somewhere rather than simply repeated from one website to another. Apart from Elizabeth, is, is there a single historical figure or character, I suppose, that's most influenced the way in which we see redheaded people? There are an awful lot of historical characters who have had red hair ascribed to them. There's a very lively debate as to the possibility of Cleopatra having been a redhead, for example. There is a possibility that Spartacus might have been a redhead. He came from one of those tribes around the Black Sea. Maddeningly, Pliny gives us a very lengthy description of him and doesn't mention his red hair. Um, Let me see what other redhead characters were there who have really set the... Well, for female redheads, there is Rita Hayworth and Lucille Ball, neither of whom were actually born as redheads, but it's impossible to think of the image of redheaded women today without referring to those two. And the really astonishing thing about them is that they somehow managed to be redheads in black and white, which is a real feat. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gilda, it's a black and white movie. How Rita Hayworth manages to be a redhead in that, I do not know, but she certainly does. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, if you could, if, if this book could change people's impressions of redheaded people, how would you like it to do that? I would like it to make it much clearer and more graspable for redheads and non-redheads alike where the stereotypes 
relationships that are associated with red hair come from, because that is a fascinating, time-traveling, multicultural detective story. But having done that, I would like it to lead people to question those stereotypes, to understand that really most of them are not worth hanging on to, but at the same time to see it as part of the business of celebrating difference wherever we find it. That was Jackie Collis Harvey. Red, A Natural History of the Redhead is out now, published by Allen and Unwin in the UK and Black Dog and Leventhal in the US. And that is pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we'll be talking about the Titanic and the history of railways. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.